All right, well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, continuing our discussion through the book. So Hebrews chapter 11 has got one subject. It's faith. And you're going to hear the phrase, by faith, so often you're going to get tired of hearing it, and I'm going to get tired of saying it. We're talking about faith all night tonight. So let's just read the first two verses and jump in. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So the chapter starts out by giving you not a definition of what faith is, but these two really important aspects of what faith is. The first one is it's the assurance of things hoped for. And Peter, in his first epistle, would tell that you and me that we have a living hope. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And do we really believe that? As Jesus followers, do we really believe, do we really have full assurance in this hope that we have something greater than anything that can be imagined in this world for us? And the illustration that Matt has used that I think is so brilliant is if you have two employees who go to work at the same job with the same responsibilities, the same hours, the same person to report to, but one of them at the end of their time working at that job is guaranteed a million dollars, who's going to be more likely to put up with a whole lot more? Going to be a whole lot more gracious, going to be a whole lot more understanding, going to be a whole lot more generous in just their day-to-day life probably the guy who's going to get a million dollars no matter what, right? That's what, for you and I, in a very, very small scale, is guaranteed for the believer, that we have a living hope. We have an inheritance that nothing in this world can compare to. This is what the Christians knew in Europe during the times of the Black Plague, that when people were getting sick, whole Towns, whole groups of communities would leave the sick to die, to fend for themselves. Sometimes wild animals would come in and attack until they would perish. And then once they had quarantined them for enough time, they would come in, clean up the mess, and then try to continue life as normal. And the believers in the area couldn't stand that. They couldn't allow that to happen. Instead, they would come in to care for the sick, care for the dying, fend for them, even though they knew it might cost me my own life because they knew this. They knew that. I've got an inheritance coming that's a body that will never get sick, that will never have to worry about cancer, that will never have to worry about growing weary or growing old. I've got something far greater that's worth me giving of myself to this person so that they might have that same hope. You only have that attitude, I think, when you have a conviction of the unseen. So how do you get that kind of faith? How do you get the kind of faith that causes you to say, okay, I'll give up anything I'll follow my Lord with my whole heart. I'm going to jump in fully with my faith because I don't know if you've heard before or had this kind of conversation with someone where someone says, hey, man, I'm really struggling. I've got these big doubts that I'm working through, and I don't know what to do about it. And nothing makes me cringe more than to hear this answer when someone says, well, bro, you just got to have more faith. You know, because I'm a pretty sarcastic person. That's like my defense mechanism. So I want to say, oh, okay, well, then I'll just put on my faith shoes, and I'll go jump in my faith car, and I'll drive down to the faith store where faith trees grow for these little faith berries, and I'll eat those until I have enough faith. Like, well, come on. How, 
how do I get more faith? Because I've got a real problem that I'm dealing with, and I don't know how to handle it, and I'm asking you for help. When my wife and I bought the home that we're in right now, it had a layout that my wife really liked, but she did not love the living room. The living room was a fully enclosed space that had no natural light, and it had no light installed. Like, there's no can lights or anything. It was all lamp lit, and she's like, that can't happen. And she's been watching a lot of Joanna Gaines, if you know who that is. Okay, so we open floor plan. Okay, so that has to happen. So as we're in the process of buying this home, I'm asking the realtor, hey, so this wall, can that go away? Like, is that, does that matter for the structure? Is it, does it, can that leave? And she goes, oh yeah, no, that's fine. I'll go, okay, that, that sounds good. Well, then our HVAC guy comes. He's gonna change some stuff before we move in. And I ask him, is this wall vital to the structural integrity of my home? Or can it leave? And he goes, yeah, man, no, it looks fine. You could rip that out. You don't really sound too certain. You don't sound like you care, but okay. So I decide I'm going to go for it. Well, hold on. Give me the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) So the first thing I do is I rip off all the drywall. And so I've exposed all the studs. And it's mostly two by fours, but there's one in the corner that's scaring me. It's this four by four, and it looks really important. And I'm not a construction guy, but I'm like, that one's different. So I start ripping two by fours out. And every time I do that, there's this piece of wood that's on the ceiling. And every time I rip a piece of wood out, it shifts a little bit and some like uh, blown in insulation starts to fall, which kind of stresses me out. You know, as I'm moving stuff, things are falling down from the ceiling. Anyway, I'm doing this and I have nothing left but the four by four. And these two people have told me it's fine. But every time I shake it, like I swear the whole ceiling moves. And so I'm thinking, you know, if I remove this and the ceiling caves in, the two people that told me it's fine, they're not invested in in my life in any way to where it becomes their problem. It's my problem. So I decide I'm going to get someone involved who I can make it be their problem. (laughs) I call my dad. Because my dad, he's been in construction for 30 years, so he knows. But he, he's working down in San Diego. He got a big job when I got this house. And so I didn't even tell him I was working on this. I really wanted to show him a before and after, and you know, it'd, it'd be great, but I need his help. So I call him. It's ringing. He answers. He goes, hey, son. And I go, I'm a man, dad. That's how I open conversations with him. And I go, I, I've got this four by four that I'm dealing with, and I want to know if it's vital to the structure of my home. So I put him on FaceTime, and we're looking at it. He has me go to all these different angles, ask me why I would do this, all that sort of stuff. We go up into the attic, and we're looking at it from up there. When we come down, he goes, you can remove that, no problem, nothing's going to happen. I go, thanks, Dad, and I hang up. But now I still got to deal with it. Because even though I've had two people who aren't invested in me say, no, 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 it's fine, now I've had my dad, and I know my dad's character. My dad loves me. My dad wants the best for me. My dad doesn't want to clean up after me. My dad wants to see me do well. So I have to, part of me go, okay, I trust that. I'm going to take care of this stud. I'm going to go for it. And even after I had removed the stud, there were a few days where I didn't want Jacqueline standing underneath it because I'm like, that's coming down. Right? So faith, it's demonstrated, it's grown, it's developed through saying, okay, I know my God's character. I know who he is. I know how he loves me, how he's cared for people in the past. I know his promises for me. I'm going to trust him. It's like when Jesus says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, walk with me a little bit. Isn't that good? Okay, let's develop more your faith. Walk with me a little more. Isn't that good? Walk with me a little bit more. 
It's like what James chapter two tells us, that faith without works is dead, that you show your faith by your works. Just knowing something, believing something isn't faith. Faith is doing something. Faith is saying, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna do what you've called me to do. And the important distinction that Hebrews has just spent the last 10 chapters making for you and me is that you are not saved by your works. The work that saves you is completed and finished by Jesus on the cross. And now you and I, like 2 Timothy chapter verse 15 says, now we get to work to be people who are approved. We do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. I want, when my dad came to the house, I wanted that to be gone and to be able to show him a before and an after picture so that he would say, wow, that's awesome. What I did not want to have happen is my dad come and see the floor is still messed up, the roof is not patched, and the stud is still there because he had already talked with me about it. He had already told me, no, 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 it's fine. He would go, oh yeah, real man, dude. That's what he would say. Like, really? I thought we had talked about this. He would not love me any less, but I want my dad's approval. And it's that same way with us, where we work, we do what God has called us to do in faith because we want our God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So tonight, Hebrews is going to take us into the attic. We're going to look around and we're going to look at this together so that when we come up against our own time, we have to act in faith. We'll be say, okay, I'll tear down the stud. Because I know the person asking me, I know his character, I know what he's like, I know that he hasn't let down these people in the past, he's not going to start letting people down now. So let's look at verse chapter 3 and start looking at people in the past, their faith, what they did, what God did. These first seven chapters is the faith in the unseen. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So I think the number one thing, the first thing, is you got to acknowledge that God is the creator. He's the creator God, the God that we follow. Everything that you see, everything that's visible is here because of him. And so everything, the implication of that is everything that you own, everything that you say is yours, from your job to your car to your money, even your talents, your gifts and abilities, your own strength, all of that ultimately belongs to God, and God has generously given it to you to be faithful with, to be good stewards of, to raise up how he's called you to raise it with your kids, with your spouse. And if you really honestly believe that, does that change everything? If you really honestly believe that your wife is the daughter of the king of the universe, won't that change how you approach certain things? If you really believe that Jesus Christ died for your son and for your daughter, isn't that going to change how you interact with them and discipline and, and talk to them? If you really believe that God has given you all the money that you have and trusted it to you, how is that going to change how you're generous? How is that going to change how you, you act with it? I think it changes everything. And the first thing that the author of Hebrews tells us is we got to acknowledge that the God we follow is the creator God. Everything visible, everything that you see, ultimately it belongs to him. Verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and th through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
So you have Cain and Abel. Abel, he looks at all that he has, all that God has entrusted to him, all of his sheep. And he, his reaction is, wow, God has been so good to me. God's been so generous to me. How could I not give, of him, give back to him the best of what I have? Because I know God is so good. I know he's going to continue to be good. Don't I want to give him the best that he's given to me as appreciation? Just to show him how much I appreciate all that he's entrusted to me. Whereas Cain, he's playing the classic pagan game where, okay, I'm going to give this to God because then God's going to have to continue to give me good things. I'm going to play God. I'm going to only serve God so that it benefits me. Not looking at it as if God has given you all that you have. Now give your best back to him. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. It's impossible to be approved without faith. It's impossible. You have Abel who says, I believe that this is yours. I believe that you've entrusted all this to me, so I'm going to give it back to you. And now for you and me, the author of Hebrews is saying, you have to be someone who puts action to what you believe. It's not enough just to know. You know that even demons know that Jesus is the son of God and they fear and they shudder? For believers, we're called to, okay, act on that knowledge. And the only way that you can do that is if you believe that God exists and that he rewards those who draw near to him. And if you believe that and you act on that, God's faithful, God's true, God's going to walk with you, reward you. He draws near to those who draw near to him. In verse seven, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There's a really interesting line in there. It's the saving of his household. There's a lot of people in, that I think know the word, but they don't live it out. And there's this common understanding about pastor's kids in particular, that they're the worst kids. And I think the reason is because pastors tend to be the worst hypocrites. They're people who know God's word. They know Jesus, but they don't faithfully walk it out. And their kids, they're... They're not dumb. They're smart. They see their parents say one thing, but then live life a completely different way. They see their parents talk to groups of people about how they've got to be generous and compassionate and kind and forgiving and merciful, but then they don't do that themselves. They hear their parents, they hear their dad or, or whoever their pastor is talk about how they need to treat their spouse, but then they live every day with that person not seeing it walked out. And as a result, the kids go, yeah, whatever that was. But here you have Noah who God tells him, hey, I want you to build this boat. And two of every animal is going to come and be on this boat. It's got to be a pretty big boat. And it takes him years and years and years to build that thing with a community of people who think that he's crazy. You mean a voice from heaven told you to build a boat that two of every animal is going to come and be on because a big flood's going to come and wipe us out? Yeah, okay, dude. Probably his wife may not have been on board. Maybe even some of his kids and his kids' wives. We don't know. But Noah faithfully does this day after day, year after year, builds a boat that God told him to build. 
And the reason that he did that was because he wanted to see his kids saved. For you and me, man, I want to see my kids saved more than anything. When God calls us to do stuff, when you know God's word, I believe you have to walk it out. Otherwise, what chance do you have of your kids walking it out? Kids know when you don't walk it out. Kids see a whole lot more than I think we give them credit for. I want to see my kids saved. And so when God plays something on my heart, when we read something together, I think we have to, we have to move. We have to act out in faith and say, okay, God, I'm in. So the first seven verses, I think they have to deal with the faith in the unseen. And then verses 8 through 22, I think it has to deal with faith for the future, faith for looking ahead. Let's look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham is in his 70s. He's an old man. And God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to leave all your comfort, all the stuff that you've known, all your way of doing life. You're going to get up and you're going to wander around in a land that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to your kids. And you're going to wander around in there until I give you a kid. You don't even have a son yet. And that's going to take years before he even gets his son. And the Bible tells us that he's looking forward to a different city, a city whose founder, whose builder is God. And you and I, man, isn't that the same thing? Colossians 1.13 tells us that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, where before we used to live in a different kingdom. But now we're heirs of a completely different nation. We're citizens of a different country. We're now, we're looking forward to not the things of this world of, of our The thing that drives us isn't comfort anymore. The thing that drives us isn't status or isn't approval of the masses of people. It's not recognition. The things that at one point could drive us and we say, this is what life is all about. Now you and I have got a different perspective, don't we? An eternal perspective. Right now, it's not how do I make the most out of 100 years. Instead, it's how do I make the most out of eternity? How do I get the most people to get to know about Jesus so that I can have block parties up there in heaven where we don't social distance very well? How do I get the most people up there? How do I live the most fruitful life I can so that the most people hear about Jesus? Abraham is looking forward to a different country, a different nation, a different place whose founder and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was considered, since she, okay, I'm so sorry. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God, the God that we serve, not only is he the creator God, but he's the covenant God. When our God makes promises, he keeps them. We can trust that when our God says he'll never abandon us, he'll never forsake us, 
when, our, when we're told that we can walk into the valley of the shadow of death and not have to fear evil because we know that our God is with us, we can trust in that. When we're told that Jesus has completed all the work, that there's no more work to ever get you more love by God, we can trust in that and rest in that. And now you're free to work and, have, and move in faith as God has called you to, unhindered. Our God's the covenant God. Verse 17. Nope. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Citizens of a different country. Have you ever been, have your kids ever done something that has made you ashamed to be their parent? You can be honest here. They're, they're in the kid's wing. When I was in elementary school, my grandparents went to this big Catholic church in um, San Diego, really big one. And so it was mass. And my grandpa always liked to sit up towards the front. And my brother, who's I think four or five at the time, was very squirmy. He always wanted to move around. It's not really appropriate for mass. And so my grandpa picked him up and set his bottom on his hand and had him resting against my grandpa's head. So he was just kind of doing this, right? And Catholic Mass is very quiet. There's a lot of pauses, a lot of air, and it's silent. And my brother, who's like four or five, did what kids do, and he just goes <laughs> But because it was pressed against my grandpa's hand, it was very loud. And then it was dead silent. <laughs> then this little boy with this cute little voice looks behind him. And he looks at my mom and he says, in front of the whole church, that was you, mommy. <laughs> I think my mom was ashamed to be her, his mom. <laughs> Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is prepared for them a city. Our God is not ashamed to call Abraham or Sarah this strange nomadic group of people who are just wandering with hope, he's not ashamed to call them his people. He's not ashamed to be called their God. It's the same thing that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah 31, 33, that I will be their God, they will be my people. God knows who we are. And God is not ashamed to call you his person. God knows what you've been through. God knows where you've come from. God knows how far you've walked. God knows the strange things that you've done in faith. And he's not ashamed to be your God. He's not ashamed for you to call him your God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is a huge, huge test. It's one thing to really understand a concept, to understand an idea, to believe something. 
It's another thing entirely to act on it. And so now Abraham has finally gotten his son. This is the one that the promise is supposed to come through. This is the one that, that there will be innumerable grains on the seashore in numbers from my family. It will grow into a great nation. This is the kid. And God says, yeah, sacrifice him. Wow. What a big test that he has. And here's the, the belief, the conviction in the unseen, the assuredness of things hoped for that Abraham has is he believes, okay, if this is what my God is calling me to do, I know my God's character. I've been walking with him for years. I trust him fully to where even if I have to do this, my God is the God who can give life when there is none. My God's the creator God. My God's the covenant God. He doesn't break his promises. So even if Isaac dies right now, I believe God's able to bring him back from the dead. But you know the story. As he's committed to it, God stops his hand and prepares an alternate. Huge, huge test, huge leap of faith. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Here you have dads thinking about their kids and how their kids are going to be looking forward and how their kids are going to walk with God. I think it's so important that we be people who are praying with our kids at night, telling our kids about Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us. I mean, that's why we go in the kids wing and make such effort to writing silly songs and to writing books and to do all that we can to give parents equipment and tools to talk about Jesus at home with their kids because it's super important. These men in faith talked about these things to their kids so that they would continue in the faith. You have Joseph who's talking to his kids about, hey, you're not going to be here forever. God's got really big plans. You're in Egypt right now, but God's going to do something. Take my bones with you. He's talking to his kids in faith saying, hey, long after I'm gone, continue walking with God, reminding them of the future promise. We have that same responsibility. We want our kids to be walking with Jesus long after we're gone, generation after generation after generation. So that's, that's faith for the future. Now, verses 23 to 31, I think, talks about faith in the present, faith in the right now. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So it covers so much of Moses' life in just a few sentences that we studied weeks ago. But it looks back to Moses' mom and dad who have an older brother. They have an older son, Aaron. They have a daughter, Miriam. And now they have this new boy born. And a mandate goes out from the king of, of the most powerful nation at the time that all the baby boys born in this time period must be killed. 
because he wanted to lessen the amount of men that would be in Israel, to cripple them, to assimilate them into that they'd all become Egyptians. And these mom and dad, they're looking at their baby going, I can't let that happen. So instead they say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to hide this baby. I'm going to protect my son. I'm going to trust him in it. And then later, when they eventually put him into a basket and send him down the Nile, they say, okay, I'm going to have to have faith in you, God. I'm going to have to trust you to protect my boy. I'm going to have to trust you that you'll provide for him. That's something that every single one of us as parents is going to have to do. And hopefully you get 18 years before you have to send them off and go, okay, God, I trust you. But eventually all of us get tested in that way where we say, all right, God, I'm not in control anymore. I trust you. Will you walk with my kid? Will you keep my kids safe? And hopefully by being people who have been walking with them and and being people like Noah, where we have been diligent and faithful that they would continue in the walk even after they're out of our household. Moses decided he wasn't going to be one of the crew in Pharaoh's household. He decided he wasn't going to compromise on what he knew he was right. Even though he was given all the best the world has to offer, he had the best education. He, had, he could have literally anything he wanted. He's a prince in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And he decided, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to give up on my integrity and do that. Instead, I'm going to suffer with my people. And there's this really interesting Interesting line, verse 26, that says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It makes this interesting connection that Moses was looking ahead. He's looking ahead to the long purposes of God, to the moment when the true king would come from Israel and there wouldn't be slavery at all anymore. It's this aspect of faith that Faith in God, it looks to the future and knows that God has prepared something that's better than you and I could have ever dreamed of. God has prepared something that's far better than anything you and I could work for, anything that this world could ever offer. God's got a plan that you wouldn't believe. In Habakkuk, there's this verse that I just love where it simply says that if someone were to come in and to tell you all the plans that God has for you, you just wouldn't believe them. You'd say, no way. For Abraham, saying, through you, all the nations will be blessed. He's just thinking, oh, cool, I'm going to have rad kids. No way would he ever believe that God would send his own son through his line to save the whole world. No way would Moses ever believe all that God was going to have for him, and that 2,000 years later, people would still be studying the words that Moses said to get to know more about how God works, how God operates, what God's character is like. And it's the same for you and me. God knows you. God knows where you've been. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. God's got plans for you and me, plans to bless you and not to curse you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. He's going to take a million people, a million people from their homes, from the life that they've known into the desert without any real direction and just trust God. And then they're going to begin this tradition 
of sacrifice, of this is how we give back to God, this is how we draw near to God, trusting in God and doing it all by faith. That this is what we do when we're people who believe in this God. This is how we walk after him. This is how we follow him. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. This is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible, just because it's crazy. You have Jericho, this city that God says that has to go, and he's got all these warriors in this army, and Joshua's the general. And okay, we're doing this thing. And so Joshua meets with God and goes, how are we getting rid of the city? And God says, I've got a plan. Joshua goes, great. He goes, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get all the priests and you're going to have them blow trumpets and you're going to march around the building and blow on those trumpets. And you're going to do that every day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march seven times. You're going to blow the trumpets and you're all going to shout. And now Joshua has this very awkward predicament where he's got to figure out how to tell the boys this plan right? These are battle-hardened warriors. They know how to fight. And now Joshua comes out and says, all right, let's go get the priests and let's get the, music- the musicians. Let's go get Johnny and his wife, Janae, and, they're, and we're just going to follow them. Really? Yeah, that's, that's what we're going to do. And guys, they did it. And they walk around that whole city, blowing trumpets, carrying the ark, following the priests for seven days, all while the people up on the building, in the fortress, are laughing at them, sneering at them, telling them how they're idiots, telling how this doesn't make sense. But then on the seventh day, they march seven times, they shout, and God does something only God can do, and the walls come down. And if you're a parent, you probably have gone through seasons or days or in one right now where it feels like you're just talking to a a brick wall where you feel like there's a wall in front of you and you're talking to it and you go, why can't you, do you not get, hear me? Do you not understand what I'm saying? And there's nothing you can do to seemingly get through that thing. I think often in relationships, whether it's your kid or it's your spouse or it's your own parent or it's someone you work with, walls can be formed. Walls can jump up. And in those it seems like no amount of work or no amount of reconciliation or no amount of saying you're sorry or no amount of can you just tell me what I did is able to get rid of those walls. It's just brick by brick that seems like there's no way you can get through it. Sometimes I think we have to do what Joshua had to, did, had to do. We walk with God, you pray, and you praise. And then I think you see walls come down. I think you see God do something only God can do. You pray and you praise as you're walking with God. I think that changes everything. And you allow in faith God to do something only God can do. If God said, hey, why don't you go ahead and throw some some tools up there, launch the trebuchet at the walls, then you'd say, oh, it's because of what I did. No, it's 100% what God did. But God wanted to partner with people and have them act in faith and step out, even if it took days, even if it took weeks, even if it takes months, even if it takes years. We're called to be people who pray and to praise and to trust God to work. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Man, talking about redeeming only things that God can do, you have this woman, Rahab. And this woman, Rahab, in faith, does something that could get her killed. And she's known 
for her occupation as a prostitute. And here's what's amazing about our God. Our God knows what you've been through, what you've done, what you've allowed to have happen, what has happened to you. And our God is faithful to redeem the years that the locusts have eaten, to restore them. Our God is faithful to take people in crazy circumstances and raise them, elevate them to places that they would never believe. Did you know that Rahab is listed in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the genealogy of Jesus? That God took someone who would never expect great things from her, never expect anything like that to happen, that not only a king would come from her, but the savior of the world to come from her, that God would come from her. Never would she expect that. No one is ever too far gone for our God. And so in faith, she trusted, okay, God's calling me to do something. I'm going to do it. And as a result, she's remembered forever because of her faithfulness. And then this last section, verses 23 through 31, verses 32 through 34, I feel dyslexic tonight. I think it's faith, it changes how you endure hard things. It changes how you approach potentially difficult situations. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to talk of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. He just starts listing. Hey, you remember all those times God has proven himself strong through weak people. All of those times God came through when it was completely unexpected. It briefly mentions one of my all-time favorite stories to teach in the kids' wing. It's Daniel chapter three. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's one of my favorite lines. I tell it to the kids every time we read this story. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the most mighty nation at the time. And he's, he has an edict out. When we sound the trumpet, you will worship this idol that I've created. And they don't do it. And so the king calls them in and they're standing before the king. And the king goes, hey, clearly there was a misunderstanding. If you'll just bow, if you'll just worship, worship, we'll call it good and you can leave. And here's what one of them says. It's so brilliant. He says, our God is able to deliver us out of that furnace that Nebuchadnezzar's threatening to throw them into if they don't bow. Our God is able to deliver us out of that furnace. But here's the brilliant part. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your idol. Do you see that? The faith in that. The faith isn't that God's going to deliver me. They know, he, he says, I know who my God is. And my God is able to pull me out of that. But I also have this assurance of things hoped for, this conviction of things unseen to where even if I have to go through a terrible death, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go against my God. That's crazy talk. But you know the story. God does pull them out. But Hebrews isn't trying to convince you that if you're all in with your faith, that everything's going to be amazing forever and it's all prosperity gospel and, and you're going to wake up fully healthy every single day and anytime you're thrown into a furnace, he'll pull you out. He's not trying to give you that illusion. 
Because look at how this is followed up. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So then he lists all these brutal, terrible things that happened to believers who suffered for the name of God suffered for the name of Jesus, suffered because they believe in the creator covenant God that you and I believe in. Terrible things that you would never want to have happened. And here's what I think is so brilliant that the Bible says about these people, where they would be, you're talking about people who became homeless. They're walking around in animal clothes because of what has happened to them. They're being threatened with imprisonment. A lot of them did get in prison. They're going to be murdered. All these terrible things will happen to them. Look at the glory and the honor that God bestows upon them, that the Bible says, yeah, those people who suffered because of the name of our God, the world is not worthy of those people. Think about that. That's the high regard that God puts on that person. You lost things because of me. I'm going to reward you beyond your most crazy imaginable dreams. All that stuff the world had to offer that they said, hey, I'll give you this if you just compromise. Hey, I'll give you that thing you're hoping for. Those are pennies in comparison to all that God has offered to us. And that's what we have to have if we're to walk this out is assurance of those things, a conviction of the things unseen, of the things hoped for. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect all these people in the Old Testament who walked by faith, who had assurance of the things hoped for, that, were, that had this conviction of the things unseen. Abraham, of Noah, Enoch, Abel, Rahab, Joshua, all of these people who acted out in, in great faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, none of them knew what you know. None of them knew God's character like you do, that God would love you so much that he would give his own son for you. And that if God is not even willing to withhold his own son from you, isn't he willing to give you all good things? They, Abraham could not fathom that idea. He saw a sliver of it, but he would never imagine that God would give up his own son that God would give up a kingdom, heaven, eternity, in order to live as a poor man wandering around like he did with a group of losers to be crucified, to be beaten, to be mocked so that he can be redeemed. You and I know so much more than any of these Old Testament people. How could we not act in faith? How could we do anything but we know so much more than them about who God's character is, his great love for us, that nothing could ever separate us from his hands. Man, why wouldn't we want to act out in faith? Let's be people who have the confidence to do so, to be generous with all that God has entrusted to us, to be forgiving even when it's crazy hard, 
to act out our God's character every single day. Let him be the potter. We'll be the clay. We'll see his steadfast love and faithfulness acted out through us in our lives, partnering with God in our own community, even today. So Jesus, we pray to be people who are known for our faith, that we're so assured of the things that are hoped for, an imperishable inheritance, that we're so convicted by the things that are unseen, that we're so fully able to trust in you, that we'd be known for being the most generous, kind, forgiving, faithful people, that people in our community would look at us and see by our works and want to know what is different about that person. I've got to know. They keep talking about this guy, Jesus. I've got to hear him because everything that I've ever heard about him doesn't, <laughs> this seems too good to be true. Jesus, let us be people who are known by our faith. Help us, give us courage. Help us walk this out today. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.